The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. I hate to spoil the party, but the summer is almost over, and the school year is right around the corner. With the start of another school year comes the regular challenges of getting back into a set schedule, students getting used to new teachers, and teachers making a fresh start. This year, of course, we have renewed COVID questions on top of the usual. But one struggle that seems to consistently flummox teachers of Jewish education, as well as some frustrated parents, is how to connect those students who may not easily relate to Limude Kodesh. So this week, we invited on someone to discuss some less conventional ways of reaching students. Hi, I'm Olivia Friedman, and I'm a teacher and educational technology coordinator at Ida Crown Jewish Academy, which is a high school in Skokie, Illinois. Olivia will share her secrets of how to connect the children using their interests to relate them to more challenging material and how you can incorporate it into your classroom or at home. Olivia, thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate it. So it's funny, we uh, we generally have people on in the last couple of months, uh, especially in the education realm, uh, talking about how COVID has impacted education. Um, but I'm glad to have somebody on that we're going to be talking about something about education that's not COVID related. So great. Yeah. So before we get into that, can you give me a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, how did you get into education and specifically uh, into Jewish education? Sure. So it was definitely a pivot for me in that I've always loved to read. I'm a big fan of fairy tales and pop culture and English literature. And so I went to Stern College for Women and I have a degree in English from there, a bachelor's. And then I did Bible at Bernard Ravel. And then what happened was my husband got accepted to law school and I needed a job because he was going to be in law school for three years. And I had to figure out, well, what can I do with my English and Bible degrees? And the obvious thing was teaching. And I say that a little glibly because I really have always been interested in teaching. And to some degree, I have been teaching for a long time in various formats. I was into blogging back in the day when blogs were big. And I also had some not so great experiences with Jewish education myself. And I really didn't want other students to have to suffer through what I did. And so there was very much a desire to fix the negative experiences I had had. But really, my big break, as it were, was when the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School in Rockville, Maryland, decided that they would take a chance on me, even though I had not formally taught before. And they did a great job of mentoring me and training me up. So I was there for a while. Then we moved back to the Chicago area in order to be where my family is. And that's how I came to be teaching at Ida Crown, where I still am now. It's so funny when, when you said uh, I was an English major. So I'm, I'm also an English major. My wife is an English major. And the question that every English major inevitably asks themselves is, OK, now what? And just hearing <laughs> you say that, it's like, oh, that brings back so many memories. Uh, but yes, that's. It. But I'm glad you were able to find a, a path that uh, incorporates your English degree a, in a way that can help you and can help uh, now the next generation. So the reason that we have you on here is to talk about your teaching methods and getting uh, students more interested in, in Judaic studies in the Mude Kodesh. Um, and you recently put out an article explaining the the kind of philosophy behind it uh, and. For those listening, we're going to link to this article, and I don't think we're going to get uh, through the entire 
uh, theory in this podcast and people can go look it up afterwards. But if you can give people kind of an overview as to what uh, this theory is based on. So my article is about teaching pop culture in the Judaic, or rather leveraging pop culture in the Judaic studies classroom. And it's a way of teaching Tanakh especially, but it can be applied to other areas like life cycles curriculum, ethical dilemmas curriculum, using pop culture. And what I say in the article is that there's four reasons to do it. And so they range um, across different areas. So first of all, I talk a lot about passion. And I say that if you can hook into students' passions and what students are already interested in, then you've got them. And you've got them along for the ride so that even if what seemed boring originally when it came to, oh, I'm going to open up a book full of Hebrew words and I'm going to have to decode them. But if I can relate that back to something you care about, whether that's sports or a character in a movie or something like that, it'll make it a lot more interesting. So there's the passion piece. Then there's definitely a creativity piece in that the kinds of assessments that I give, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, involve much more student agency and ownership and creativity. For example, my students would create a wedding website where they might take two characters from a show that they like, such as Emma and Killian from Once Upon a Time, and they'll marry them off, but they'll have to include all of the correct information about what exactly is a Jewish wedding, how do you conduct a Jewish wedding, all of those pieces. And then you get into academics slash pedagogy. So there's been a lot of research on education and the research really supports teachers using pedagogy that's effective. And for example, project-based learning or design thinking, these are ideas that are being advocated for now in terms of 21st century skills. And so if we want students to do their best learning, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that alternative assessments is a good method to use and alternative assessments lends itself to use of pop culture to make it fun. And the last piece and probably the most important piece to me as a Judaic studies teacher is integration in that I'm teaching modern Orthodox students, but really this could apply to any student in the modern world, whether you affiliate as conservative or reform or you're unaffiliated, you're living in a world, especially if you're an American, all around you, there's pop culture, there's celebrity culture, there's celebrity politician culture, there's movies, there's TV shows, there's Netflix, there's influencers. So that's all around you. And you have pretty much two choices when it comes to working with that and working with Judaism. You can either say, well, there's my Jewish identity, which is one piece of me, and that appears when I go to synagogue or Jewish day camp or Jewish school. And then there's everything else that I do as an American, or you can try to figure out a way to live an integrated existence where I am a Jew, I may also be an American, and I want all of those things to be present all of the time, which means that if I'm watching a show on Netflix and I see something that connects back to what I learned in my life cycles class, uh, that's great. And I want that to happen. So for that, I'll be bringing in the pop culture to show the kids how they can relate these things that they're experiencing as Americans to their Jewish identities, and that can exist simultaneously. Okay, so that, that's a nice overview. I want to go into each one of those different sections a little bit deeper. So we'll go in order. So let's start with passions. Um, the So just as a reminder, passions are, we relate to what their current passions are. The the, the main question that I have on this, as, as also a former teacher, no, not also, as a former teacher, um, the issue that a lot of teachers face is that not everybody is on the same educational level in your classroom. I taught in a small, in a small yeshiva, 
uh, where I had at any given point, the entire grade of that school. And when you have the entire grade, there's obviously gonna be some kids that can learn at a higher level and some kids that don't learn as a, on such a high level. Um, but if you're relating it that back to passions, I don't wanna ask you about how you relate it, how, how you talk to different pe- uh, students of different abilities. I wanna to talk to you how, do you, how do you talk to students with different passions? So you mentioned, you, you mentioned that, you, know, you give an example of, of once upon a time, all right. And then you have a student that doesn't watch that show, or you have a student that uh, all I care about is sports, or all I care about is music, or all I care about is this one particular thing. How do you maybe relate all of these things to a larger classroom with a bunch of different passions? 100%. So first of all, I don't think that you're necessarily going to touch on every single student's passion. And that's that's true, right? We, we know that to be true. But what we can do is we can drop in where possible. And here's what I do. At the beginning of the year, I give all my students a Google form. And in the Google form, I call it the learning more about you form. I ask them, what's your favorite song? Uh, what's your favorite book? What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite TV show? All of those things. Then I read them. And it could be that it doesn't even necessarily relate to the lesson explicitly, but I can mention that I at least read them because something will come up and I'll say, well, I know that you like the bulls and I noticed that. And so I think there's also that element of just caring about the student and letting them feel heard, even if I haven't designed an entire project or an entire unit or an entire lesson around their passion. So there's definitely a piece of this that's about teacher-student relationship and connection where passion can be sprinkled in, but it isn't necessarily the whole unit. The other thing is that you can leave things open for the students. So for example, in my wedding website project, what I say is you get to pick the two characters who are getting married in this story from anywhere and anything. It could be a comic strip. It could be a book. It could be a TV show. You get to pick who they are as long as you then have all of these components in the website, right? You have to include what is a bedeckin and what is the yichud room and so on. And so that leaves it very open because if they want to imagine the fictitious wedding of two sports players or Olympians, then awesome. And if they wanna pick a TV show or a book, also awesome. And so I'll design a lot of assessments in that way where it's open enough that they could bring in what they want, but it's not specific so that it has to be only one way. It's not only about relating it to the student themselves, it's also about letting the student know that you're interested in their interests. Yes, there's definitely both components going on because a lot of what happens in the classroom, I think, is you're trying to persuade students to buy into your subject and to work with you because those are both important components in that there are students who are not bought in at all and they wouldn't be bought in with you and they also wouldn't be bought in with another teacher because the subject itself is not one they care about. And then there's a situation where you'll have a student who may enjoy the subject, but doesn't like you. And so they'll learn, but they won't learn from you. And so if you want to try to work on both of those fronts, then you want to try to create a classroom where A, hopefully the subject is interesting in some way, shape or form to the kid, but B, even if it's not, the student learns that you as a teacher are someone who's interested in them, respects them, is willing to hear them out, cares enough about their recommendations, for example, that you'll follow up on their recommendation. If they recommend a book to you to read, you'll read the book and then you'll talk to them about it. There's a lot of goodwill that can be earned if you do that, of course, in a sincere way, right? You cannot do that. I'm only doing it so I can get my students to listen to me. That won't work well. All right. So I'm going to move on to creative thinkers. Um, you explained what it is before, but can you give us some more uh, like concrete examples of what this entails? 
Sure. So um, what I mentioned is that when we're little, we're actually really good at this. And there's this paperclip test where uh, if you ask a five-year-old, what are possible uses for a paperclip? The kids can come up with a whole bunch of uses beyond the, I'm going to clip papers together. But as you become an adult, you get so locked in to your particular way of thinking that you lose the understandings of what else is out there. So what I'll do is I'll try to design assignments and these don't even necessarily have to have an explicit pop culture component, but they're just a different way of thinking and they force students to think about the text differently. So as an example, let's say we're learning um, whatever section, let's say Shmuel. And so we're learning about different characters in Shmuel. We're learning about Shmuel and about Hana and about Ailey and about the sons. So I might have an exercise where the students have to cast the characters. And it's like your dream cast, you use any actor or actress that exists, or even if you don't want to use actors and actresses, if you had to pull people out of animated films, right? Who would you cast as Shmuel? Maybe, you know, maybe it would be Gandalf. And then again, maybe it would be some aged wizard character from some animated movie. So you can go across the whole spectrum. You can make it appropriate for middle school, high school. And by forcing them to have to think about who would be the actor or the character that would play this and then have to actually make the connection using Sukim to back up what they're saying, they have to think really deeply about who is this character? What are their qualities and character traits? What makes them important? Why do I care about them? And why would this person be the appropriate choice to be them? And so it just gets them out of the rote, you know, read the Pasuk, translate the Pasuk, learn the information, take a test, because it forces much deeper thinking. And then, of course, aside from that creativity in terms of casting and things like that, there's the creativity where they'll make something. And there's a whole entire movement now around maker makers in education and maker spaces in general and how constructing things and making things gives students a feeling of pride because I have created something that wasn't there before. So a different assignment, which I can give with Yermiyahu, let's say, is there's this scene where Yermiyahu is put on trial. You're going to take clips from movies that actually exist. You're going to redub them with your own voices. You're going to create a recut trailer of this scene. And they have to think a lot about who will we select? How will we redub it? How is it going to make sense? Are we going to add background music? And then they create something at the end that wasn't there before. It's pretty cool. Now, a lot of the way you're, you're going about this has real world applications to it. Because I, I think that as the world kind of moves towards a more automated society, a lot of what is going to happen in the future is that in order to earn a living, there's going to be a lot more creativity. People will pay a lot more to see your creativity, to listen to your creativity, to view it. Um, and this kind of, this kind of uh, method of teaching lends students to not only have the practical applications, oh, now I can create a video, but also the mental capacity to think in that kind of sphere. And I mean, th this is a podcast, but there's a whole uh, YouTuber industry out there and TikTok and all of these different mediums where people can express their creativity and really earn a living that way that maybe people in our generation or above don't really fully comprehend. And do you, do you ever think that, that this is the way that you're teaching is something that the students can then take with them into their like much, I don't know what age you deal with, but maybe take with them into their future Yeah, careers. ninth to 12th graders. Oh, so yeah. And absolutely, yes, 100% yes, right? I've already had stories where students did something and then they had to do something in college and they were like, oh yeah, I remembered that we did Prezi in your class. I used Prezi to do the presentation what's, in college. I learned about Adobe Spark. These are different presentation formats. Okay. Prezi is like a fancier souped up 
um, PowerPoint okay. and Adobe Spark. It's hard to explain, but it's this very beautiful professional looking web page. I mean, there's several different options, but one of them is a web page. So I've definitely had students come back to me and say, I learned about this with you and now I'm using it in actual school. But even beyond school, in actual school, as opposed to your school, right? College <laughs> for them is different. You know, right. it's a different experience. But but it's um, beyond that. A hundred percent, students need to be very comfortable with creativity and collaboration and ambiguity and multiple perspectives. And these are all things that I'm trying to really get them to understand and then to figure out how to do. And that frustrating process of having to work through it is good for them too to have to see. Hmm, it didn't work the first time. What do I do now? So let's move on to the pedagogy. You mentioned earlier design thinking and alternative assessment. So first of all, if you're not in education, you might not know what those are. So can you explain what those are? Absolutely. Uh, let's start with design thinking. So the concept of design thinking is that anytime you have to create something, you need to think about why you're creating it, who you're creating it for, and then you have to actually create a prototype, get feedback on it, and then hopefully create the actual final product. So it usually gets broken down into five stages. They call them, they say empathize, right? You've got to empathize with the person who's actually going to use the product, define whatever it is that you need to do, whatever the problem is that you're trying to solve. If you're creating it to solve something, ideate, which is kind of brainstorm all the possible things you could do, prototype, actually create it, and then test it. So those are the five. So the thing with design thinking, as you can see, it very much translates to real world applications because there are people who are going to be making actual stuff. Like, you know, if you're building a piece of furniture, for example, but there's also people who are going to be creating apps or websites that are going to help someone. Um, and even any, any intellectual property to some degree, even when you're creating an essay, let's say, and you're writing something, you have to think about the person who's going to read this, what will their experience be reading this? Am I clear? Is this logical? Is this organized well? And so on. So that's the concept behind design thinking in, in that it, it's an idea that has made its way to education, but originally I think really came up because it's what people were really doing in the real world. And the idea is that this is a 21st century skill. We want students to be able to do this, to have these planning abilities, design abilities, be able to deal with something not working, right? What if I build this chair, if I'm trying to build a chair and I bring it to the person and they say, well, this doesn't actually function the way I need it to. And they give you that feedback. Well, then you've got to try again and you have to get back up and, and, and so on. So that's that. And then the alternative assessments idea, it really grew out against having tests that weren't meaningful tests in that if you take, let's say, a multiple choice test or even a writing type of test, a lot of times what happens for many students is they cram in all the information the day before, they spit it all back on the test, hopefully they get the 100, they get the test back, and then you get the inevitable question, are we done with this unit? Can I throw this out? You know, can I throw out my notes? Or they don't even ask you, they just crumple it up and they throw it away. So when you have that happen, how much learning really transpired? Or even maybe there is learning and maybe it's staying in their brain, but they haven't made any kind of product that they're proud of. And that's not great because it's good to be able to take pride in your learning and in your knowledge. So alternative assessments are ones where you're creating something that is either inherently valuable 
Or even if it's not inherently valuable, it's something that you would be really proud of and proud enough, hopefully, to show it to people other than your teacher. Maybe you would show it to your parents. Maybe you would show it even to outside people if it's an industry type of product and show like, you know, if you were designing an app and you create the app and maybe you would show it to people in the field who do those sorts of apps. And that also goes into something called authentic assessments, which is where you create them for an authentic audience, whether it's parents, whether it's people who are in that discipline and you showcase it. And that's part of something called project-based learning or problem-based learning. Tikva Wiener, who's at the Idea School in New Jersey, is the one who's really developed that in a major way and who has these celebrations of learning that are showcases where people from the community can come and see what her students have made. So she's a really interesting person to talk to as well on that idea. Mm -hmm. So I just want to give you one comment on, 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 on design thinking, and then I want to go a little bit further into alternative assessments. So I love the concept that different industries borrow ideas from other industries. So you mentioned that design thinking really is more of a kind of a marketing strategy, and then that education kind of borrowed it. Yet literally yesterday, I, was, I work in healthcare as a profession, and my boss was running a, uh, a big webinar for the entire mm -hmm. company. And he said, does anybody know what the healthcare acronym F-I-F-O means. And everybody, like most people knew that it stands for first in, first out. And I went over to him afterwards and I'm like, that's an economics term. Like that, that, is, that is definitely originated in economics. He's like, oh, I only ever heard of it in, uh, in terms of healthcare. I'm like, no, no, it's, a, it's an economics term. But it just showing me that a lot of industries, it's not just education and it's not just, you know, healthcare. A lot of industries are borrowing research that other industries have produced and the fact that we're using them in other capacities just it it's really cool it's a really cool thing to watch in in, in real time um but i wanted to go on to alternative assessments because when, when when you said alternative assessments my first thinking was i'm talking to the pop culture educator right and <laughs> my first thought was was uh daniel tosh i don't know if you're familiar with daniel tosh i don't even know if daniel tosh is cool anymore comedian he used to have a show on comedy central called tosh.0 um, or maybe he still does. And uh, one of his uh, stand-up bits was where people say, oh, I'm really smart, just I'm not a good test taker. And his response is, oh, you just conveniently forget the parts when we have to test you on the things that you know. And my, my response to that was like, I wasn't a good test taker, but I, I tell you what I was really good at. I was really good at research, composing my thoughts and putting them down on a piece of paper and presenting them. I was always good at presenting. I was always good at, at talking. And I was always good at organizing my thoughts in a cohesive manner. But I just couldn't memorize things. And for that reason, I was always good. I was always better at English and math, mm -hmm. which is not unusual uh, combination, because those are the things that require the least memorizations. They're more of the figuring things out. You had to memorize certain things, certain things, but then you had to put pen to paper or pencil to paper and figure them out. And the things like science and history, I couldn't remember them. Like I, I, I couldn't, those were mostly fact-based things and mm -hmm. it wasn't working out things. So when you said alternative assessment, I'm like, oh, maybe, uh, maybe she's going to talk about, you know, writing and, um, and maybe, uh, and maybe pre presentations, but it's not even that it's creating things that might necessarily work outside of school. And when you said that, my first thought was Warby Parker. Well, it doesn't have oh. to be limited. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it doesn't have to be limited to that. It can include the things that you're saying, things like essays 
and um, other ways of assessing knowledge that are not tests. So definitely, you know, it could be an essay, it could be a collage, it could be an interactive collage using something like ThingLink. Um, all of those are on the table for sure. So yeah, I just, I jumped to, I guess, the pop culture components and the ones where really I jumped to what's called authentic assessments more okay. than alternative assessments. Authentic assessments really go to the next level where you have created an authentic product in some way that could be valuable even beyond school or the skill that you learned creating that product could be valuable even beyond school. But they're both important, alternative assessments and authentic assessments, and you could use both and do both. So I want to get into the authentic assessments and I'm going to be the example of the glasses company Warby Parker because that was started in a college or a grad school uh, as a grad school project and they turned it into a business. So my question to you is, have you seen any of your students be creating something in your classroom where that probably related to uh, Judaic studies, Tanakh, whatever, however they're doing it, that can be or has been brought out into the mainstream? Interesting. I, not to my knowledge, um, like I, I can't think of something where I explicitly said, you know, create this and then that bled over into an actual business model or anything like that. But first of all, I don't always know, meaning, you know, I'm teaching these kids during high school, then they go on to college and beyond. And for all I know, down the line, there comes a point where they are using something that's a throwback to high school. And I just have no idea because right. they've moved on to a different aspect of their life. Um, that having been said also, just because it's not happening in my school doesn't mean it's not happening at all. And that's where I would refer you back to Tikva Wiener. Tikva spent a lot of time looking at High Tech High, which is a school in California that got featured in a film called Most Likely to Succeed. And they've done really cool things. And one example of what they've done is let's say they were teaching science and food science, and they had to figure out a way to learn science. Well, one thing that they did is they actually created a food truck, like an actual food truck where the students were responsible for um, knowing how to be safe food servers and cooks and create the food, serve the food, actually go out into the community, have people in the community buy it. They were responsible for figuring out profit margins, all of that. And so you had all these different pieces involved in terms of leadership and math and science and so on. But that's something beyond what I'm doing at Ida Crown. Like that's kind of next level. Okay. So let's move on to the fourth aspect, which is the integrated in integration into Jewish life. Now, this is the part where people listening are going to be like, okay, this is, this, is, this is the crux of the issue. So all of the things until now were not necessarily strictly related to Judaism. Everything is more of an educational theory. The way we were talking was how you integrated it into Judaism. But the, mm -hmm. this part is really the, the crux of, of A, why we have you on this show to begin with, and B, why it's an interesting topic. So unfortunately, I'm going to come out to this from a little bit of, of the negative side. So firstly, has there been any sure, pushback? Sure, go ahead. Has there been any pushback? Like, do, do people like think, all right, pop culture is nice, but I really want to keep my pop culture separate from my Judaism. Now that pushback can come from yes. uh, school staff, students, or parents, or anybody else. Yes, 100%. There's definitely pushback to this model, which I understand. And it, there can, it can come from several different areas, right? One area could be the view that 
I want my students to learn really strong skills, the skills of how to learn Humash, the skills of how to learn Gemara. And I just do not have time in class to do anything other than the traditional model of skill building, decoding, reading Parsha Newt. Like that's really where I want to spend my energy. And I totally respect it. Like I understand that completely. And if that model is working for this teacher and they're getting the engagement of the student, you know, students are thriving in that model, great. Um, I have found that not every student does thrive with that model, which is part of my concern, but, but, I, but I think there is value 100% to it. Then there's the perspective where we get concerned about, well, how will students tell the difference between things that are holy and things that are not, right? You're trying to suggest that Torah is a very holy occupation, and then you're going to go and compare Torah to something that you saw in Wonder Woman, like, isn't that demoting or denigrating the Torah? And that's really where I disagree because I'll make clear to the students that I view the Torah as a guidebook for life. I view the Torah as divine. I view it as, you know, God-given. And anything that I'm trying to show you in class, if I'm bringing in Star Wars, if I'm bringing in whatever it is that I'm bringing, I'm doing that to show you, isn't it cool that this document that guides our lives that is you know thousands of years old you can still see reflected in the modern culture that you consume you can still see this aspect and go wow that clarifies or that's a great visual depiction of this concept that was in the torah first and so i'm doing a lot of stressing this was in your own religious heritage first and what you find that excites you outside of your religious heritage it's great that it's exciting to you and that you're enjoying it, but isn't it even cooler to see that those same aspects are actually here and you could delve into them within, you know, where you're coming from. So I think that that's that critique, you know, in the hands maybe of someone who's not sure how to do this, maybe it would be a problem. But when it comes to me, I don't think any of my students are walking out with the impression that I think that the Tanakh is the same as Wonder Woman, for example. <laughs> So the next question that I have for you on this is, I live in New York, you're in Chicago, I don't know much about Ida Crown, but from this conversation, um, and from the website that I'm looking at right now on Ida Crown's website, Ida Crown's probably a modern Orthodox, uh, like strictly modern yes. Orthodox school. Yes. Do you think that your, your program, your work, your, your, your methods can work in a more right-wing environment? I think it can, because you just have to take from the media that would be considered appropriate, and that really depends on the school. So in some schools, um, students do read fairy tales or watch Disney movies, even if they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to other contemporary stuff. And so you, you can pull from whatever it is that the students do know. And so if they know Disney stories or if they know fairy tales, and that's the pool that you're pulling from to try to make connections to them, great. Um, some students are interested in sports and sports is okay, uh, or, or sports teams are okay. So I think a piece of it is really just within the school, what would be the pool of American culture that is deemed acceptable? And if that pool exists, is there any kind of interplay? You also don't want to force it, right? You don't want to make, make it, I'm going to try to find this really not correct like connection between baseball and Torah just for the sake of it. That's not going to work either. But if you if you have a certain pool that is accepted within the school and you happen to see that really there is this connection and sometimes it can even be behaviors, right? If you see an amazing story in the news about how, and this happened actually, and it happened with a Jewish guy, but it didn't necessarily have to only happen with a Jewish guy. There was a man who found a desk 
and stuck inside of the desk, there was, I think, a wallet that had hundreds of dollars, and he ended up returning it to the person. And this gets into a whole sec section of the Gemara, where you have a Gemara where someone sells you, I think it was a donkey, and accidentally um, there's a jewel, or there's a field, and there's a treasure in the field. And so does that treasure belong to you? Or or not. And even if it legally belongs to you, what's the appropriate thing to do? In theory, he paid for the desk and inside of the desk, there was the wallet. Maybe you could make a case that he should be able to keep that desk, but he went maybe above and beyond and returned it anyway, did what's like the Menschlich thing to do. So there's stuff that you can pull from, assuming that that would be acceptable as a news story, right? Clean news story like that to illustrate how these concepts, let's say in the Talmud, are still applicable today. People are still grappling with them, dealing with them. There's modern day applications. And it's really just a question of what's okay within that context. But I think there definitely is stuff that would be okay. And that mm. could help illuminate or excite the kids. It's funny when I was teaching in, in, in a yeshiva, uh, I wanted to do a debate. Uh, I want to teach, I wanted to teach a little bit about, about debating and how it works. And the topic that I chose was not the right topic. I chose um, physician assisted suicide and it was very difficult for them to separate the religious aspect of it to the secular legality aspect to it. Um, and picking the right topic, you're right, is exactly, is exactly the issue. Uh, picking the right source is, is key to making something like this work. I wanna read one quote from your article in Lair House that actually, that, that feeds right into this. So, you said Judaism can be used to analyze the behavior of famous athletes and to examine in which respect they are worthy role models. Are they caring? Are they kind? Do they exhibit sportsmanship? Now, that's good for athletes. Uh, but if you want to extrapolate that over to pop culture, to um, to actors and singers, my, my, my question to that is that those types of people generally, and even athletes also, I shouldn't even exclude them from this, have a public persona and a private persona and sometimes when the public persona doesn't match a private persona that comes out in the media, um, I could give you a bunch of examples. I won't name anybody right now. Um, mm -hmm. But how do you have that kind of differentiation with your students when they're kind of like trying to analyze a, 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 a character versus an actor or a public persona versus uh, something that the person might have done behind the scenes that, you, that we happen to find out about? Yeah, we'll have those discussions. Um, we really will. So first of all, very often the, the way that I structure the tie-ins, it's more from narratives. Like I tend to pull more from stories, movies, TV shows where there's an actual narrative and less about the actual person for exactly the reason you mentioned. I can't ever really know that person. And I won't know if that person might at some point prove to be a disappointing role model. But if there is a situation where we are seeing someone being a disappointing role model, or we had looked at one aspect that seemed really good and now here's another. I think that's really important to engage with the students and talk about that and talk about that experience. And that experience, of course, is not limited even only to athletes. Unfortunately, you'll have that experience within the Jewish community where you'll have someone who's a really important figure that people may have looked up to, a rabbi or whomever it may be. And then you'll find out some piece of information about how they've been behaving, it will make the news, God forbid there will be a scandal, and what do you do then? And that's a really big discussion that not only are teens having, but adults are even having in terms of what, they, what, what those people created, right? Do I still use what those people created or do I not? Because I know that the source from which it came 
is not good. And you get into precedent with Alicia Benavuya and Rev Mayer. And Rev Mayer's approach was, well, I'm going to take the seeds from the pomegranate, as it were, and I'll leave out the peel. Like, I, I think that there is still something to rescue. But there's other people who feel like once someone has done something, whatever it is, that's so egregious, we have to just like leave them by the wayside. We shouldn't use them as a role model for anything. And I think having that ability to candidly acknowledge that this is a fact of life and that this can happen and where do we go from here and what is the Jewish precedent for it can be very valuable. That's kind of the separating the art from the artist uh, discussion. Yeah. yeah. Um, are there areas of, of pop culture that are inherently counter to Judaism? And if so, how do you deal with that? So I am definitely selective about what I bring into my classroom. We also have a situation in my classes where I'm teaching either a class of only boys or a class of only girls. And so it may be different if you have a co-ed situation of what you do or don't bring. But for example, there's, there's people or images that I just would not bring within a certain context because it would not be appropriate for those students or for that context. And um, I, what I do is I don't walk in and say, I'm going to decide for you what is or isn't okay. But what I do do is I'm very thoughtful and intentional about whatever it is that I'm bringing in and whatever it is I've chosen to show them. So I won't just show them any particular thing that could connect. It will be something where I feel like, A, this connects, B, this is appropriate, C, I think that this will deepen their appreciation for what we're studying. Hmm. And um, it's hard for me to give a blanket answer to, you know, this is off limits and this isn't because a lot of it depends on what it is your students are already imbibing and what they see and what's on their mind and what's acceptable within your particular school or school system. So I can't give you as clear of an answer as I might like because a lot of it really is dependent on the student body. All right. Um, so here's the big question. Does it work? Yes, it does. And how I know is that I have testimonials from <laughs> students and from parents where people have written and said, you know, this was so creative. My child took such joy in this. My child really enjoyed showing this to me. They were excited to show me the recut trailer that they made. They brought this up during dinner and it was, you know, dinner table discussion. I've had students come back after their gap year in Israel or even after college and visit because they've come back just to visit the school in general and say to me, I want you to know, I forgot pretty much everything in a bunch of my classes, but I remember all your projects. Like I remember my Tanakh projects. In fact, I've had students email me when they're in, you know, the year in Israel or in college saying, can you help me find that, you know, social media thing that I created? I want to show it to my teacher here. I think that they would enjoy it. So the fact that they're thinking about it years afterward clearly means that it made an impression. And then beyond that, when you give students an assignment that hopefully they find enjoyable, and you also give them the time in class to work on it, because I don't give them a, a difficult assignment and then say, go home and do this on your own time, right? I give them the assignment and I support them in it. They're in class with me, I'm available, I'm there to help them and to guide them and to make sure they're successful. Then they also have a feeling of this teacher cares about me. So beyond the actual humash that is learned and the assessments and the projects that, that are created, there's a relationship that gets formed. And so I'm in touch with a lot of my students from years prior. I'm, you know, I'm, I follow their social media, they follow my social media. And so I, I, I get to maintain that relationship and that's really nice as well. Oh, that, that leads me perfectly into the next question. Where can people find you? Where can people find more about what you do? 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm Olivia Friedman. I teach at Ida Crown. I'd be happy for anyone to email me if they wanted to follow up on any of this. So that's O Friedman, F-R-I-E-D like in dog, M-A-N at I-C-J-A dot org. Um, I do have a personal website, oliviafriedman.weebly.com, where you can just see lots of my student work and what they've created and the projects that they've made. And uh, and where are you on social yeah, media that's, that's if people want to uh, follow you? Follow me. Oh, yeah. So I have an Instagram account that's called The Book Rave, The Book, R-A-V-E. And all I do there is review books. And so it's great. You know, you, if you want to read books, I've got lots of books that you could read. I, I like <laughs> to read there. So that's uh, that's my Instagram. And uh, I also have a podcast, but the podcast is usually intended for adults. And that's called Enchanted Torah. And oh. so it takes the same concepts here of, of linking pop culture to Judaic studies, but here I'm exploring stuff that I wouldn't necessarily show to my students because maybe the ratings are not for teenagers and things like that. So that's for adults. And of course, we will link to all of those things in our show notes and on our various social medias, as well as the Lairhouse article that sparked my interest in getting Olivia on the show. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Yeah, so if there's any teachers listening who are kind of curious about any of this and wondering, well, how would I bring technology or pop culture into my classroom? And how does this work? And what kind of assessments can you create with this? And would like to see examples. I'm really happy to talk with you, you know, on a Zoom or by email. You're welcome to be in touch with me. It always is really exciting to me when teachers not only adapt my work for their school, but then they share with me, oh, look, here's the projects like my students made that came from my adaptation of your assignment. I love that stuff. So do be in touch. Have, have people uh, reached out to you? Do you do speaking engagements? Yeah, so I normally speak about Tanakh. That's usually where I'm asked to come in. And a lot of my Tanakh lectures are on things like, you know, Tanakh and, and using uh, contemporary stuff, whether it's Grey's Anatomy or Wonder Woman or whatever it may be, and, and illuminating concepts through there. I also have a Safaria account. You can see some of the source sheets and things that I've done and created there if people are curious. And I, other than that, I'm kind of an educational consultant for this area, using technology in the Judaic Studies classroom and using pop culture in the Judaic Studies classroom. Happy to help on either of those. All right, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us this week. This was a very enlightening discussion and uh, good luck to you in everything that you do. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being asked and I enjoyed the conversation. My thanks to Olivia Friedman for joining me this week. As a former educator myself, I know how difficult it can be to relate students to material they have no interest in learning. And I'm always interested to hear how teachers are doing it. If you are a teacher, or have had a teacher, or have a child who has a teacher who uses some unconventional education methods, please let us know. We'd love to hear your story. And for everyone else, Kol Tov. The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Srelly Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg. Follow us on Facebook at The Jewish Living Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish underscore living. You can also email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.